three, two, one. Thanks for joining us on Kentucky Caliber. This morning, I just finished listening to the address to Congress by Ukrainian President Zelensky, and that just wrapped up a couple of minutes ago, and, and I just wanted to share some thoughts on that uh, in conjunction with the topic that we're going to be covering today. First of all, uh, on an emotional level, it, it's a very effective presentation and a very effective message uh, from, the, from Ukraine's president. And we appreciate uh, the thanks for the aid and assistance that the United States has already given to Ukraine and the Ukrainian people. And of course, uh, we all feel terrible and our hearts go out to those who are, who are in the path of the, uh, the invasion from Russia right now. And of course, we want to help them, but we must ask ourselves, what can we do to help them uh, strategically and intelligently? Uh, those are the things that we have to consider as we weigh our next steps on what we should do, what we could do, or, or what we must do uh, in order to help the, the people of Ukraine against the Russian invasion. And so when we think about that question, what should the United States do? What can we do? It's helpful to provide a little bit of historical context to help us find some answers to those questions. We've been in, we spent, you know, from 1945 to 1991, depending on how you define the, the start dates and the end dates, what we used to call the Cold War, for those of us who lived through that and remember that time very well, what we used to call the Cold War was a confrontation between the United States and the then Soviet Union. And this was a global contest, not, over, not just over territory, but also over ideas that went on for many decades. And so there's some lessons that we can learn from that, from that past. But we should remember today, the Cold War doesn't just have a past, it also has a present. The world has changed since the original Cold War. I'm not yet ready to call this Cold War II or Cold War Part II or, or a continuation of the original Cold War. It's really not clear yet which one of those terms is, is most applicable or most accurate. But... We need to take into account some of the things that have changed in the world that we live in and in order to, to use the lessons from the past to apply to the present. And so I want to just briefly go through some of those to get to answers to the questions of what should we do uh, on the question of helping Ukraine. And I think the one that's foremost on most people's minds, especially here in the United States, not just amongst our policymakers but amongst uh, the American people, is the nuclear question. Russia is still a nuclear power, as is the United States. In the Cold War, the original Cold War, there was a concept called MAD, which stood for Mutually Assured Destruction. The idea was neither side, neither the American nor the Soviet Union, would use nuclear weapons against the other because they knew, if they did so, that they would be destroyed themselves. So their own destruction in a retaliation, in a retaliatory strike, would prevent them from launching a first attack with nuclear weapons. And so the theory was, because of that, no one would use nuclear weapons, even though both sides had them. And so the question is, does MAD still apply today? Are we still in a world where mutually assured destruction is a sound enough principle to prevent 
a nuclear war. Because nobody, not Ukraine, not the United States, not Russia, no one wants a nuclear war. And so we have to ask, when in, in any situation where there's a potential direct conflict between the United States and Russia, we have to examine the risk of nuclear war. And so do we still live in a mad world? Will mad still mitigate the nuclear risk? I would say the answer is not completely. We don't completely live in the same mutually assured destruction style world that we used to. I would call what we live in today a modified mad. And here are some of the key differences. First, when we can, when we talked about a potential nuclear confrontation in the in the Cold War, the original Cold War, it was pretty much accepted wisdom on both sides, on the American side and the Soviet side. It was pretty much accepted conventional wisdom that we would we would avoid both sides would seek to avoid direct conventional battles between what we call conventional military forces. That's the Army, the Navy, the Air Force using you know machine guns or missiles, conventional weapons. So we would seek to avoid a conventional war between the United States and the Soviet Union because of the possibility of it leading to a nuclear war. But today we see a little bit of a variation from from this dynamic. What we've seen today is actually Russian President Putin using the threat of nuclear weapons to prevent an attack on his own conventional forces. So this is a little bit of a change from the original Cold War dynamic. And because of that, it has a more direct impact on the current situation in Ukraine. So nuclear weapons and the threat of them are being used to prevent an ongoing conventional attack against Russia's neighbor. So that's, that's an important difference. A second important difference is the existence of stealth aircraft, stealth platforms, which are capable of delivering nuclear payloads. The United States has stealth aircraft that can deliver nuclear payloads. It's possible Russia may have a similar capability. I'm not aware that they have anything exactly like what we have, but it's possible they have a similar capability. And that's important because a key component of mutually assured destruction <clears throat> was the ability to detect an incoming attack. In other words, we could see it coming. If aircraft were launched or missiles were launched that were carrying nuclear weapons, a radar or satellites would detect those and we would be aware that the attack was coming. We wouldn't have a lot of time to respond, but we would have some time. And that was also true for the Soviet Union. They had similar technology to what we had. Their radar and their satellites could also detect any potential attack from us. And so because of that, as long as we could look at our equipment and see that no attack was in progress, we had a pretty high degree of confidence that at the moment, nothing was happening as far as the potential, an actual nuclear war. No one was launching missiles. No one was sending aircraft. We knew that because we, our equipment told us that. But today, stealth aircraft have changed that equation because they're specifically designed to be undetectable. So now you have, the, you have platforms like the, like the B-2 bomber that are capable of carrying nuclear weapons and evading detection. And so this means that we, when, when folks in, what, in Russia now look at their radar or their satellites, they can't be 100% confident that there's no, <coughs> excuse me, that there's no nuclear attack underway because of the existence of stealth aircraft. And that would also apply uh, if the Russian Federation or if Russia has a similar capability. So stealth aircraft have, is the second thing that's, that's changed the equation. The third and final thing that's changed the equation is the existence of the internet. 
and the, the power that rumors have because when a large enough amount of people believe rumors to be true and base their decisions and behavior and actions on that belief, then rumors take on the substance of actual fact. Even though they may not be true, when they drive behavior, when they drive decision making, they have an impact that is very similar to, if not exactly like, an actual fact itself. So, whereas in the original Cold War, someone could have gone on, on, a, on a radio or on television and said, a nuclear attack is underway, we have to act. Well, the government would very quickly have said, no, there's not. Our equipment's not showing anything. And people would have accepted that. But today, anyone can go online, anyone that has a video, video capability, can upload a video saying there's a nuclear attack underway or we're getting ready to launch a nuclear attack. And that rumor could very easily take on the force, even though it's not true, it could take on the force of actual fact. And so that would start to influence decision makers in both the United States and Russia. So rumors of an impending nuclear attack or false rumors could also lead to misunderstanding, uncertainty, confusion, and these things all raise the risk of an actual nuclear exchange. So those three factors, the existence of stealth aircraft, the capabilities that ordinary citizens have with the internet, and already the willingness of Russia's president to use the threat of nuclear force to protect his conventional um, military forces from attack, these are three things that are very different from the original construct of MAD in the Cold War. So we don't live in a MAD world anymore. We don't live in a, in a world where mutually assured destruction is a very strong concept and, and it has a very powerful belief system or framework of thought that would prevent an actual nuclear exchange from occurring. Because of those factors, it's a modified MAD and, and even the concept itself is not as strong as it used to be. So the risk of a nuclear exchange would be higher, is higher today because of those factors, especially if the United States and or NATO found themselves in a conventional shooting war with Russian forces. The potential for that to escalate into a nuclear confrontation would be higher today than it was during the original Cold War. So that's an important change that we have to keep in mind when we weigh the costs and benefits, the risks versus the rewards, if you will. Uh, I, I'm not saying we have to approach this with an accountant's mentality. I'm, I'm not saying that at all. But we do, have to, we do have to make some attempt to quantify what the risks versus rewards would be for different courses of action going forward uh, in the Ukrainian uh, situation. And that's not the, the nuclear factor is the one that everyone talks about. But there are other important factors, too, that have changed. And we need to fully account for those. A second factor, and I, and I already started talking about this towards the end of, of the, the first factor, is the, the existence of the Internet. So we're connected through cyberspace like never before, and we're connected with economic ties never before. So we'll deal with each one of those separately. The cyber portion of the equation is important for several reasons. First of all, during the first Cold War, what life was like behind the Iron Curtain was largely an unknown. It was largely a mystery. We had very little real information about what life was like for people who were living in the Soviet Union. And correspondingly, they had very little information on what life was like for people living in the United States. Now, of course, there were a number of, of 
writers and speakers and, and whether they were government sources or academic sources or military, who were all too happy to fill in those blanks with their own conjecture. But the fact is, we didn't really know a lot about each other, and we had absolutely no way to directly communicate with each other. Leaders could, could talk through diplomacy, but the people of each, of each respective nation could not just talk to each other. Well, that's no longer true today. Today we can. Today you can talk to someone. I have Facebook friends who, we, who, by the way, I can still talk to. I know there was supposed to have been a ban. There may be, but it doesn't appear to be 100% effective so far. So we can actually just talk to someone. Uh, in Russia, and they can talk to people here in the United States. And while that sounds good, and it is in, in many ways, it also brings up another problem. So whereas in the past we had a scarcity of information, now we have an, a, an excess. So in the Cold War we knew too little about, about each other, and now we probably know too much. There's videos and audio content everywhere, and, and how can you tell what's authentic how can you tell what's been edited or how can you tell them what's just a straight up fabrication when there's so much out there, <clears throat> excuse me, when there's so much out there for us to look at, look at and listen to. And a second way that that's significant in, in changing, pardon me, a, a second way that that's significant is the platforms that provide all of that content. In other words, the YouTubes, the Instagrams, the Facebook, or if you're in Russia, the VK and Telegram. All the social media platforms that make that content accessible are not controlled by either the U.S. government or Russia. So imagine, for those, and this will be, this should resonate for folks like myself who grew up during the, the latter half of the Cold War, but have a, a good memory of it from their, from their childhood or, or from their early adulthood. If, think, can you imagine if during the Cold War, IBM had said, okay, we're just going to turn off computers in the Soviet Union. We've, we, we don't think that their actions are appropriate. We've had enough. We're just going to flip a switch and their computers aren't going to work anymore. We, our jaws would have literally hit the floor. It would have been unbelievable. Well, today, that can actually happen because platforms like YouTube and Instagram have decided to erase or pull the, the Russian state media content from their platforms. In other words, they've taken away the ability of the Russian state media to communicate on a larger scale. They've deplatformed the Russian state media. Now that doesn't mean they've completely shut them down. I'm not saying that. But if you look at what's happened since YouTube made that decision, the number of views that Russia's state media outlets have got have absolutely plummeted. It's cratered. So their ability to reach a larger audience has been severely curtailed by being deplatformed. And that's important because the ability to control the narrative, to shape beliefs, attitudes, and perceptions about what's going on in Ukraine is a critical component to that situation. The battle for beliefs is paramount because, as I mentioned earlier, you know, beliefs, that's what controls our behavior. The Facebook ban in Russia is really not that significant by itself because not many Russians use that. Even Facebook's own data suggests something like 10% of people in Russia regularly use Facebook. So it's not a lot. They're not really, that's not going to really have a wide impact. YouTube is a very different story. YouTube is different. It's very popular in Russia. Lots of people use that on a daily basis, if not hourly. It's very popular. So the disappearance of Sputnik and RT and all of the, the uh, constellation of online platforms, or rather on, online web sources that they, they broadcast every day, the disappearance of those 
is going to raise questions. It's not only going to take away the Russian government's ability to spread its message. It'll diminish. It won't take that away completely, but it will diminish it. But it's going to raise some questions for folks that are that are in Russia. Some will buy the narrative. Undoubtedly, a few will believe the, the Putin's response that you see, I told you, the West is out to get us, and they're now they're taking down our, our, our state media from their, their platforms. I think some people will probably buy that. But I think there's a lot more who are going to look at that and think, you know, how is it that they have so much power? How is it that, that, that YouTube can take away the megaphone from Russia's own government? That's interesting. And, and how could, not only how could they do that, but why have they done that? They haven't had a problem with it for the, for the past several years uh, until now. And all of a sudden now they're not, on the, they're not on the platform anymore. Why is that? And so those types of questions are precisely the ones that Russia's government does not want its citizens asking. And it, it should be quite clear that Russia does not want either its citizens or its journalists asking questions it doesn't like because the Duma recently passed a law that stipulates anyone who calls the, inv the, the invasion of Ukraine an invasion, just, just for saying that, you can get 15 years in prison. 15 years in prison. Just for saying it's an invasion. That's it. Not for offering evidence that it's invasion. Not for saying, I was there, I have proof. No, not, not the evidence, not the proof. Just, just saying it. Just the idea. Just the message. And so some people have, have read that as a sort of desperation on part of the, the Russian government. I think that's a little bit premature. But it certainly shows that they're worried about losing control of the narrative. And the ability of private companies who operate on a global scale to influence what people think and what they believe today is a factor that's very different from what was in the Cold War. And finally, we need to think about the folks who were directly involved in this situation today and how they've changed. You know, at the end of, of World War II, let's take Europe. Europe was had been devastated by the Second World War. They were divided. They were bitter enemies, suspicious of each other. Their cities were in ruins. Their economy was shattered. Today, the European Union is more united and economically powerful, arguably, than any time in its history. It has a GDP nearly as large as the United States, much larger than Russia's. It's true they are a customer of Russian energy and Russian fuel, and that gives, that gives them leverage against Russia. It also gives Russia leverage against them when it comes to where they're going to buy their energy. But Europe is much stronger than it was when the, Cold, when the original Cold War first began. By contrast, today, this time, it's the United States that's war-weary. We, we, of course, have nowhere near the level of, of destruction that, that Europe faced after World War II. I'm not saying that. But we have been at war for 20 years now in places like Afghanistan and Iraq. And we've been, we're doing, we've been doing deployment after deployment of troops downrange. We've been spending increased defense budget after increased defense budget year after year for 20 years. And today... The United States government has over $30 trillion in debt. It has a GDP to debt ratio of 124%. That's higher than it was at the end of World War II. At the end of World War II, it was only 115%. So even after the massive spending program we went on to fight the Second World War, our debt to GDP ratio was lower than it is now. And on top of that, the, United, the American public is war-weary. And for good reason. It's for good reason that they're war-weary, because we've been engaged in constant conflict since what we thought was the end of the Cold War. Only a, only a few years after that, barely a decade went by, 
and even that decade was punctuated by a whole bunch of different military operations. But after 9-11, we've been at, at war with, with terrorist groups and terrorist organizations for, for the better part of 20 years. So that has changed. The, the positions are a little bit uh, reversed from what they were at the start of the Cold War. And then, of course, Russia itself, you know, during the Soviet Union, you, you had to, if you wanted to just move to another village, you had to get government permission. If you wanted to travel outside the country, that was flat out forbidden. If you wanted to protest or have any kind of public demonstration, that was forbidden as well. And there was little access to any technology that would give you a view of the outside world. I mean, I mean beyond the borders of the Soviet Union. Well, those things are all different today. Today, Russians, at least before this, this situation, before the Ukrainian invasion started, you could move around the country if you wanted to. You could travel abroad. Russians could travel abroad if they wanted to. They do have access to the internet and to television that comes from uh, stations outside of Russia. And so they're a more connected, a more connected world means that there are different ways of fighting this battle than there were during the original Cold War. There are different ways of fighting the battle today. We have different tools and we have different options than we had from say 1945 until 1991. And so it's in that light, when we think about the original question, how do we, how best can we help Ukraine? What can we do? What should we do? What are the risks? We have to also consider those new tools that are available to us when we formulate our plans and when we decide on a course of action in determining what our response should be. So when we, when we look at the new tools we have available to us today, we have an obligation to factor that in to our response because I think I think we should help Ukraine, and I, I think most Americans agree with that. The question we have is how best to do it. What can we do to maximize assistance to Ukraine and the Ukrainian people, but at the same time minimize the risk of to ourselves of getting involved in, in a direct shooting war with Russia, which could lead to a nuclear confrontation, which, as I stated earlier, is, is even more of a risk today because the, the rules of mutually assured destruction are no longer as firmly in place as they used to be. So looking at looking at the situation, looking at and listening to the President Zelensky's uh, speech this morning, which I did, you know, some of the things that were mentioned, uh, the first of those was a no-fly zone. And I want to take just a minute to talk about that specifically because it's been, it's since the Ukraine's president directly asked for that. Uh, I, the, the videos that they've, that they've shown and many of the ones that we've been able to see, which have been authenticated, and, and you can go to the, the Center for Information Resilience, which is a, a nonprofit or non-governmental organization run in the United Kingdom, which is very good at sorting out, uh, you know, sort of separating the wheat from the chaff, if you will, and, and authenticating or not. They have a team of computer science PhDs and digital forensics experts who can verify whether or not a video is, is valid based on the timestamp, the geotag, you know, where it was posted, when it was posted. We can have a, a pretty good idea that it was real or not. A lot of the footage that we've seen, of course, is heartbreaking and it's terrible um, when you see U Ukraine cities being hit by Russian munitions. What I would say on those, uh, just from an analyst point of view, is, is quite a few of that, quite a lot of that destruction is being inflicted by ground forces. Artillery fire, ground-to-ground -ground missiles, rockets, uh, and others are, are doing a significant amount of that damage. Yes, Russia's air force is dropping bombs on on Ukrainian cities. That that is happening, but I really I don't get the sense that even if we could theoretically impose a no fly zone over the entire country, which I don't think we can, but if we could, that wouldn't do anything to stop artillery fire, 
surface-to-surface missiles, tanks, and all the other types of uh, projectiles that are being used even more than, than aerial bombs to target Ukraine cities. So I'm not confident that if we, even if we could stop um, Russia's Air Force from flying, that it would really do that much to prevent the destruction when most of it is coming from ground fire. And second, this would, it would be contested airspace. There's, there's almost no way that NATO and U.S. jets flying over Ukraine would not be challenged by the Russian Air Force. They have a modern air force, and we're used to fighting an enemy that doesn't have one. The Taliban doesn't have an air force. Al-Qaeda doesn't have an air force. Really, going back to the days of Saddam Hussein, he didn't have much of an air force either. So we're used to having unquestioned or uncontested air supremacy. That would not be the case over Ukraine. So it would almost certainly put U.S. and NATO forces in a shooting position or a shooting battle with Russian forces, and that would be... Once you have Russian and, and American jets, you know, firing on each other, you're, you're in a de facto state of war, which we're trying to avoid. And here's the reason we're trying to avoid it. Not just because we want to avoid a nuclear confrontation, although, of course, that's an important reason. We have the ability to fight this battle on behalf of Ukraine at levels and in theaters that they can't. They can't put sanctions on Russia that can cripple its economy we can. They can't stop the sale of Russian, or at least curtail the sale of Russian energy exports. We can. They can't use the dollar, as George Friedman correctly put it, as a weapon. We can. They can't send military supplies, which have, by the way, have been, including the weaponry, have been quite effective so far against Russian ground forces. We can. We need to continue doing those things that help Ukraine that they are unable to do for themselves. That is where we can be of most value. We can send more weapons. We can increase aid. Yes. We can impose harsher sanctions on Russia. Yes. We can continue to try to curtail the export of Russian energy. Yes. We can do all of those things because that is fighting the battle at a strategic level on behalf of the Ukrainian people. And I appreciate their, their I'm sure everyone here appreciates their thanks and in, in us doing that, I think we should do more of it. But we can fight those battles for them on a strategic level where they cannot. And we can provide weapons and training, well, not training anymore, but weapons where they, that will enable them to fight the battle better themselves directly. Because that gives them the ability to fight without risking a direct war between Russia and the United States. Because that would not be helpful to Ukraine. Then you would have an expanded theater of operations probably the Baltics and Poland, and you would see a shift in focus. So no longer would Ukraine be the primary focus of our aid and our logistics and our assistance. Then we would have to start thinking about how we're going to manage a battle space that's many countries larger than just Ukraine. So from a strategic level, engaging directly against the Russians right now doesn't make sense in, in terms of helping the Ukrainian people or the Ukrainian government. What we can do is use many of the new tools that are available to us to fight battles on behalf of Ukraine that they are not able to fight for themselves. And I think that's the way we should go, and I think we should continue to do that. And that includes, by the way, the cyber dimension of this whole conflict. That includes deplatforming. That includes allowing folks... And the address this morning was actually pretty extraordinary when you have you know, a, a video a live video conference, a live video feed coming from Kyiv, from Ukraine's president, while the city itself is under still under Russian attack. That's quite extraordinary. 
uh, yes, Britain was under attack when when Churchill addressed Congress, but he didn't. He came and you know he he wasn't. We weren't watching a video of of him while the while you know munitions were still being fired. So that that's quite extraordinary. So in terms of our our next steps and our way ahead. I don't think the the no fly zone would greet would would create as much relief for Ukraine perhaps as their as their president thinks it would, and it would be an enormous risk. However, I do think and and as he said, if the no fly zone was I'm using his words here, he said if the no fly zone is too much to ask, then we propose an alternative, and that is the the increase in assistance in both aid and weapons, and I think that is something that the United States and our allies should do, and in fact are probably already doing. Uh, and to, to increase those in order to provide Ukrainian military forces and civilians with the, the tools they need and the supplies they need to fight Russia's invasion themselves. And, and they're, by the way, doing a, a rather remarkable job of that. I don't think anyone expected the resistance to not only be this fierce, but also this effective. And so from a, from a military standpoint, that justifies continuing to send aid and assistance because it's working. Not because of the aid and assistance itself, but because the people of Ukraine have a willingness to use those to take that fight on themselves, which they have been doing now for three solid weeks. And so I think we should continue to do that, and we, sh we can do that without increasing the risk of nuclear war. There's another aspect to this that Ukraine's president raised this morning in his address, <clears throat> and I haven't talked about that yet, and that is the issue of values the values of the ability of a, of a group of people to choose their own path to choose their own style of government to choose their own nationhood uh, is something that is very much under attack because that is in a way in a sense what this conflict is all about moscow wants ukraine to be part of russia and to be governed by the russian duma and president putin they do not want Ukraine to be an independent nation that determines its own fate or that determines its own style of government. And so in that sense, that is a, a this marks the end of an era in the post-Cold War, or however we want to call it, uh, this could be a resumption of the Cold War. If you want to refer to the previous you know, 30-some-odd years as an interlude, we may start doing that. But in the past 30 years, since the fall of the Soviet Union, there's been more talk about gaining access to markets and improving economic conditions and driving prosperity and older previous conversations about what type of government works best or which type of economy works best sort of fell by the wayside. And this is, this is what Francis Fukuyama referred to in his article uh, titled The End of History. What he, what he meant was that the, the big arguments about what's, what is the best type of government, what's the best type of economy, which ideas are the best. In his view, and this became fairly widely accepted, those questions had already been answered. You know, democratic governments was the best way to go, capitalist economy was the best way to go. And for a very long time, there were no direct challenges to that. There were a lot of academic challenges to it. That's still an ongoing and lively debate. But in terms of what governments were actually doing, there weren't very many challenges to those ideas. To a lesser degree, the terrorist threat represented a challenge to that because the, the jihadist theology is very different and, and completely opposed to both democratic governments and the, the capitalist economy. 
but those were limited to regions that had never seen either. And so they didn't quite have the same impact as the Russian invasion of Ukraine. But now again, these these questions about values are, are returning to the forefront of international relations. And the issue of democracy being directly under attack from a foreign invader and a large scale not seen in 80 years has once again returned uh, to Europe and to Asia. And so we will have to once again start wrestling with these and grappling with these, these notions of is the idea of democracy itself worth defending? The people of Ukraine definitely think that it is. And I'm not saying that Ukraine didn't have its shared problems before this happened. They absolutely did. And Ukrainians themselves will be the first to tell you that. They absolutely had problems with corruption. They absolutely had problems with the way their government worked. No question about it. But who doesn't? I mean, look at the United States. We have, we certainly, we've been a, a democratically governed republic, at least, for well over 200 years, and we have substantial problems with, with corruption that we're still trying to sort out. We haven't solved that in over two centuries. So the idea that we should have expected Ukraine, which has been an independent nation for you know over 30 years since the fall of the USSR, the idea that we should have expected them to solve problems in 30 years that we haven't been able to, to, to completely wrestle with in over two centuries is certainly not fair, definitely not realistic. And, and something we need to take into account when we look at this situation. But the, the battle for democracy now, the front line, is in Ukraine. This is a battle for the imposition of a foreign invader's will over the, the will of the people who live in that land. The Ukrainian people do not want Russian rule. They do not want to be formally a part of Russia. They do not want to take their, they do not want to obey Russian laws. They've made that very clear. And so now the, the issues of independence and self-determination are, are once again back at the forefront of international relations. And I think that will continue to be the case um, as, we, as this conflict plays out. Whatever the outcome may be, whether Russia prevails and establishes a puppet regime, whether Ukraine prevails and, and repulses the Russian invasion, or I think in even the worst case scenario is a stalemate where nobody wins and the conflict drags on. And, and each side gets more desperate to win as the destruction just continues unabated. So the values argument is one that should resonate here in the United States, and I hope it will make people who have lost confidence in not just the American system of government, but in the idea of democracy itself, I hope that will give them something to think about. For all our problems, and there are many, and for all our, our significant flaws in the way that our government works, and, and there's probably just too many to count, and for, and for the way our political discourse during an election year sometimes gets heated, absurd, combative, nasty, all of those things are, are true. But it would be much worse not to have a system like that because we see what's at stake when you lose it, when you're forced to live under the rule of someone and you don't have a voice at all. Not having a voice at all is far worse than having voices that are constantly arguing with each other or calling each other names. The battle to control the narrative or the battle to, to control what people think or what people believe is a crucial one in this fight and is one at which you can already see the lengths to which the Russian government is going to try to prevent anyone else from gaining control of the narrative they want people to believe. And, and make no mistake about it, it is an invasion. It is not a peacekeeping operation. The Russian government is straight up fabricating that. They are lying. They are lying on an Orwellian scale. And what I mean by that is, 
if you've ever read the book 1984, where totalitarian regimes have the, that's where the whole idea of the thought police and thought control, all that came from. It came from Orwell's book, which I've read. It's one of my favorite books. I've read it a bunch of times. I don't want to get into a sidebar just on that because uh, we could do a whole show just on, on that book itself. But you see the beginnings of a return to Soviet-style repression on free speech and free expression today in Russia. And we should think about that. The First Amendment here in the United States is for, was first for a reason. The founders made it the First Amendment because it's the most important the most important freedom, not the only important, not the only freedom, and it's not the only important freedom, but it's the most important freedom that our Constitution guarantees, and it protects citizens from the government. It prevents the U.S. government from doing what the Russian government has now already done, to putting journalists in jail, to stifling free speech online and from its private citizens, who just for voicing an opinion. 15 years in prison. That's very Stalin-esque. That harkens back to the days under the, the Soviet system where similar types of repression existed to stifle free speech. And so we should, we should I hope, renew our appreciation for the, the freedoms that we do have and that we can still be a voice of freedom. There is such a thing as truth. The, the Putin regime wants you to believe that truth doesn't exist. They want to muddy the waters. They want you to believe that there's only relative opinions and they're all equal and that just because you saw one video today doesn't mean that tomorrow you won't see another one that will completely change the first one. They want things to be, they want the narrative to be only what they say it is. Well, the problem is they have suffered a head-on collision with reality in Ukraine because the ground truth is nothing like what the Russian state media is saying that it is. People in Russia who have friends and relatives in Ukraine are finding out either through phone or text or social media, they're getting images themselves that the state narrative is untrue. And just this week, a Russian journalist risked her own freedom and safety to protest on a live state broadcast by holding up a sign that's saying that the Russian state media is lying to its people, which it is, on a breathtaking scale. I know that there are Americans here who have trust issues and some that are legitimate with, with what the, the American government says, but it is absolutely nothing compared to the degree and scale of lying you're, you're seeing right now coming from Moscow. It is strategic lying to serve a specific agenda, not just to control an agenda, though, to control reality itself, and that's what's Orwellian about it. That's, that was the whole purpose of Big Brother. They didn't want to just control politics. They wanted to control reality. They wanted to control your every thought. And so this is a first step towards that type of situation in Russia. And so we need to continue to allow and facilitate the flow of actual facts and information, which people in Russia will get through social media, through telephone, through voice messaging, all the new tools of modern communication that are available, Russia's government is trying to shut them down and to trying to control them. But they're going to find that that's a very difficult proposition because reaching the Russian people themselves with the truth about Ukraine is an excellent way to fight the battle on a strategic level to change the position of the Russian government. And I know some people here have talked about regime change within, within Russia itself. That's very unlikely right now. Certainly, I've said, as I've said before, you know, the Russian people overthrew the czars, the Russian people overthrew the Soviet Union, 
they're certainly capable of overthrowing Putin's regime. But keep in mind, you know, both of those previous instances happened after very, very long periods of suffering. The Tsars were in power for centuries. The Soviets were in power for 70, 80 years before people finally said they'd had enough. Putin has only been in office for 20 years or 22 years. So, you know, it's unclear if, if the Russian people are ready or even interested in taking that step. I, I kind of feel like when I hear those things, that sort of wishful thinking on, on the parts of, of uh, American statesmen and American uh, government officials. But we absolutely can keep facilitating the flow of free information so that the Russian people can gain access to it because that is a powerful way to challenge the narrative that the Russian government is trying to is trying to ins impose upon its people. And although we've we had our differences, you know, the government here in the U.S. and big tech companies, big tech companies have a huge role to play in this because they are the gatekeepers. They control the platforms. And they've, as I already said, by deplatforming Russia's government, YouTube has taken a step towards fighting their disinformation and lies, which are broadcast 24-7. The Russian strategy is to drown the Internet and to drown the world in misinformation, disinformation, and outright falsehoods in order to make people think that their version of events is the correct one. Well, it's not. And that's another way that we can keep fighting at a strategic level on behalf of the people of Ukraine and on the on, on behalf of Ukraine itself. So I, I hope that that would be my response to President Zelensky's message that the United States will continue to help. We will do more to help by sending more supplies and more arms. We will continue to fight at the level that Ukraine cannot itself cannot fight itself by taking steps at a strategic level that will impact Russia's ability to continue its invasion and hopefully eventually will prevent them from being able to continue combat operations so that they either have to withdraw or are defeated by Ukraine uh, itself. And that would be the immediate short-term goal of those actions. So thanks everyone for listening. I hope you have a great day. Take care.